fighter, just slinging the ball around. Oh yeah, it's Tim Couch. That man is jacked, and that's a fact. Hell of a quarterback. Oh yeah, it's Tim Couch. This enough, everybody knows. This is how the story goes. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dogs of War podcast, the number one Browns podcast on the planet. You got Kevin and Raleigh here. For our longtime listeners and new listeners, you know what time it is when that intro song is played. The man who is already a member of the National High School Hall of Fame for his performances in football and basketball, currently a final nominee to the 2023 NCAA College Sports Hall of Fame, the legend who played quarterback at the University of Kentucky before being drafted number one overall by your Cleveland Browns in 1999, Mr. Tim Couch. Sir, thanks for joining us. And how are we doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. It's good to catch up with you guys again. We, we can't believe another football season's here. We've got a game under our belt and good to see the Browns uh, finally get a win on opening day. I don't know how many they've won in the last 20 years on opening day, but they may be like the second one, I guess. Something like this that. This is the third. The right. third. Okay. Yeah, I knew it wasn't many. Second was last week, uh, but, but home opener, how many of those do we have? Was it two, Was 2004? Maybe home opener. 2004 oh, no. sounds right. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, so yeah, glad we could share this victory Monday with you and all of you listening. Because holy shit, I mean, wins. I don't know if I'll ever not just be jacked for a week when the Browns win. Like I don't care what the record is. I hope it's a a situation where you know we're just casually, consistently putting up 13 wins a year. I will love every one of those wins, but the week one, it's just like, it's been a curse for so long. And like last year, we maybe lifted it, hopefully a long-term lifting, but it still didn't feel weird. It felt kind of weird because I was at Baker, but beating the shit out of the Bengals feels awesome. Yeah, and we're going to get into that, but there's a lot to catch up on here first. As we said, congratulations, uh, 2023 College Hall of Fame nominee. You know, it's awesome. I've actually been on that finals list for probably like 10 years now, but I haven't, uh, I still haven't been selected into actually into the hall yet. So it's just like, like you said, man, it's, it's a tough process to get into. There's some great players on it every year. Only a handful of guys are getting in. So uh, hopefully this is the year. Um, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, the first couple of years I was, I was so excited, paying attention to every time they announced the new class. And every time I saw my name, uh, you know, didn't my name uh, name not get called? I, you know, you feel that disappointment. So I kind of quit paying attention to it. So now I'm just kind of sitting back and just hopefully waiting for a call to get in. So ho- hopefully this will be the year. Do they come to your house like the NFL uh, Hall of Fame? Do, honestly, I don't know if it's just a phone call or what, but uh, you know, it's uh, it'll be a great honor to get in. There's uh, you know phenomenal players on that list each year, so it's uh, it's a tough list to crack for sure. Let's recap real quick: career totals of Kentucky. You completed 795 of 1,184 passes. That's 67% completion rate, Raleigh. You threw for 8,435 yards, including 4,275 during the 98 season alone. Yeah, you're a sicko. 74 touchdowns, including a 97-yard touchdown to Craig Yeast against Florida 98. You still hold the NCAA record for completion percentage in one game at 83% against Vanderbilt. Sorry, Vandy. You also still hold the NCAA record for completions per game at 36.4. Let's see. You held the record for 4,151 offensive yards in a season until some guy named Tim Tebow. Or is that Tim? Have you heard of him? Tim Tebow. In 2007, 
He also held the SEC record for 4,275 passing yards until some dude named uh, Joe Burrow broke that at LSU. You were a 1998 Heisman finalist. Good God, man. What are you compensating for? Like, leave some other accolades and records out here for the rest of us. <laughs> we, we had a good run, man. You know, I was fortunate uh, at Kentucky to be under a great coaching staff. Coach Hal Mummy and then Mike Leach, who just passed away last year, was my offensive coordinator. So uh, we, I had a great uh, great group of guys. Uh, Sonny Dykes, um, you know, who's the head coach of TCU now, he was on that staff. Uh, Chris Hatcher, another guy, he's the head coach at Samford now down in Alabama. Uh, just a, just an awesome staff, man, and uh, had great players around me. You mentioned Craig Yeast. He was one of the best receivers in the history of the SEC. So it all just kind of came together for me, uh, you know, with the staff and the system and the players around me uh, that I was able to go out and put up a bunch of yards. In your freshman year, because you went in and they had a whole different offense that – you didn't want to play for, or I guess wasn't really matching up with your skill set freshman year. And then when you replaced, was it Billy, Billy Jack? Jack? Hell yeah. Jack, yeah. Um, and the new coaching staff came in. That's when things really clicked, right? Sophomore, junior year. Yeah. You know, I went there, um, you know, as a freshman and Bill Curry was the head coach. He, he's the one that recruited me to Kentucky. And Bill Curry, used to, uh, he was the head coach at Alabama before he was uh, he came to Kentucky. And he was more of a, you know, run oriented option style quarterback. And, you know, coming out of high school, you know, I held every passing record in the history of high school football. And, you know, they're obviously telling me, hey, we're going to change the whole system for you. We're going to put you in the shotgun, spread offense. We're going to throw it around. I get there the first day of training camp, and the first play we put in is the option. And I, I called my dad after practice. I'm like, oh, man. I said, this is going to be a long damn year. Like, we, we are running the option. And sure enough, it was awful. I wasn't playing much. Uh, Coach Curry got fired. And then, uh, you know, that's when they brought in Coach Mummy and, and Coach Leach. And, we kind of, you know, changed uh, changed the history there for UK football after that. You told the story on Kentucky Radio recently, speaking of uh, calling your dad. Um, something happened with you and your father at your official Tennessee visit. Would right. you mind, uh, can we reshare that story one more time yeah, for our... Yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah, so so during the recruiting process, you know, I, was, I had options to go pretty much anywhere. And I had it down to um, Tennessee, Florida, Kentucky, Ohio State. And Penn State were my uh, my final five, and uh, finally got down to where I said, you know, I'm going to go to I'm going to go to Tennessee. I grew up really close to Knoxville. I actually grew up closer to Knoxville, Tennessee, than I did to to Lexington. And I was kind of you know down there in that southern uh, southern part of Kentucky, that southeastern uh, part of the uh, state. So um, I grew up watching Tennessee football. Peyton Manning was already there. He was a couple years ahead of me. Uh, so I was always there for you know practices, and I went to camps there and everything like that. I was real familiar with the program. Got close to the coaching staff. Uh, uh, Coach Fulmer and Coach Cutcliffe. And so they come to my house, uh, watch me play a game or whatever. They come to the house and I, I, I tell them I'm going to commit. And <laughs> it's my, my mom and dad and brother and coaches in my living room. And I tell them, you know, I'm ready to commit to, to Tennessee. And, um, you know, I know I understand the whole process, probably red shirt of season, sit behind Peyton, learn, learn uh, what's going on and then take over when he's done. Um, and about the time I said that, my dad gets up and he leaves leaves the room. <laughs> and I hear him start up this old red pickup truck outside. And the coaches are just like, what the hell's going on? Like, we've never seen this before. <laughs> you know, um, he took uh, off. He left. Yeah, he left. Uh, yeah. And um, they're, they're like, are we waiting on him or what's going on? And I'm like, man, he's not coming back. So, you know, finally, he comes back later that night and um, big argument happens and I, I just leave I go to my best friend's house down the street um, so I end up staying there like two or three days probably 
And finally, I just come back home and I say, um, you know, if it means this much for you, for me to go to Kentucky, then I'll just go. I said, but I'm going to give it one year. If it doesn't work out, I'm transferring to Tennessee. And he's like, all right, deal. So that's how that whole thing happened. And the first year was absolutely miserable. It was awful. Uh, worst year of my life. And then somehow, I don't know how it worked out that way, but the stars aligned and and Coach Mummy came in and put that system in for me. And I was able to stay at Kentucky and ended up working out the way it did. Wow. It's like, uh, I don't know if anybody's seen the movie October Sky. Oh, yeah. But it's like, Dad, I want to be a... I want to be a scientist. And then the dad like gets mad. Like you're going to stay in the coal mines and, but except the dad wins the argument. And then the guy dominates in the coal mines. One of the most underrated movies of all time, but Hey, and I say this with the utmost of respect, that is the most Kentucky thing I've ever heard in my life. The pops just storms out during the official visit gets in a red pickup and just storms out and he's gone. Absolutely, man. It it was Kentucky. You know, I grew up in Southeast Kentucky in the mountains. My hometown only had like 350 people in it. Uh, so, so super small town, coal mining town, um, really, really not a whole lot going on there. So we were just, you know, uh, small town people and, you know, didn't, you know, we weren't used to dealing with college recruiters, you know, coming in there and, uh, and, you know, we didn't know how the process worked. I was just kind of going through it. Luckily, uh, my brother was a quarterback as well. He's, he's four years older than me and he played in college as well. He played Eastern Kentucky, Eastern Kentucky University, uh, was a really good player. So he went through the recruiting process a little bit. Uh, but then when I came uh, came along, it uh, you know we were dealing with coaches every day, calling, showing up to the house, showing up to the school, everything. So it was a little overwhelming to to kind of deal with it. My dad he, he felt pretty strongly that I should go to Kentucky, and I guess you know at the end of the day he ended up being right. Not to milk that October Sky reference, but that kid also had an older brother that played in college who was heavily in West Virginia. Yeah. Um, that's how how big was the football team? Uh, so we, we were a, we were actually a 3A school. I think 4A was the biggest in Kentucky at the time. So we had like a 1,000 students or something like that. Uh, but it was a big county. It's just the, the town I was from was only 350 people. So there's only one school in the whole county. So everybody came from, you know, all over just to come to that one school. <laughs> that makes a lot more. I'm like, well, how do you get on college's radar if it's like 20 kids at the school? You said, right. you said your hometown was 350 people, but – Let's not forget, and I, because I we only have so much time with you, so I couldn't read your high school resume off. Um, but you held, you know, and still hold like every Kentucky many national basketball football records. So um, size of the town, be damned. I mean, you, you still got it done. Yeah, yeah, we got it done, man. We, uh, you know, I, I had I had good coaches at that level, really. You know, the my coach at uh, in my high school, he actually was a quarterback for Eastern Kentucky University as well. I got a shot with the Patriots in training camp. Um, after college, uh, didn't, didn't end up making the team, but he came back to coach me after that. So he had me from like seventh grade all the way through high school. And he was coaching me like a college quarterback in eighth grade, you know, teaching me how to read defenses and blitzes and change protections and, and, uh, you know, working with my throwing mechanics and all that kind of stuff. So I was fortunate to have, uh, somebody working with me at that age to kind of accelerate my progress a little bit. And weren't you playing varsity basketball in the eighth grade? Seventh grade, yeah, seventh and eighth grade. Uh, so, yeah, I uh, I was a starting quarterback on the ju- junior varsity team in seventh and eighth grade. Backed up my brother on the varsity team, and then I was uh, you know back up on the on the varsity basketball team in seventh and eighth grade as well. We talk about this every time you've been on. Um, you know, just looking at you here because we're on video. Our, our listeners, it's a matter of time. I mean, you said once that you weigh the same now as you did in your playing career, like. 
Come on, man. Yeah, I mean, you're you're built like like Miles Garrett right now. <laughs> I do. I weigh the same. You know, I think I'm just I'm, I'm leaner now. Uh, so the weight is not. Uh, you know, I, I still weigh two thirty five or so. I may be five pounds heavier than I was when I played. Um, you know, I just uh, when I was playing, I was eating chicken wings and drinking beer with Aaron Shea all the time. Uh, so he, was, <laughs> he had me some bad habits, man. So now I've worked on the diet, and you know, obviously been working out every day for twenty years or so. So you know, it's just uh, it's just been something you know I've done over time, and just uh, you know, I, I I notice when I don't work out, my body feels horrible from all the injuries and stuff. I actually just had uh, back surgery like uh, six weeks ago, a second back surgery. Um, so I'm recovering from that and, um, you know, had, had a bunch of injuries over the years, but, you know, just trying to stay as active as I can and stay, stay fit and healthy. Uh, sorry that the franchise that this podcast is about didn't think they'd be a fucking offensive line back in the day. <laughs> hey, but speaking of, I mean, you, you could obviously tell, you, sorry, mom, you can obviously tell looking at here at the video that Raleigh and I work out every single day. I was thinking. And these are three high-powered athletes just having a nice chat right here. That's all it is. Yeah. He's at two thirty-five. I'm like, okay, I'm in that ballpark. Totally different composition. <laughs> oh. Hey, so how how you healing up? Are you able to golf yet? No, not yet. I'm uh, I'm healing up pretty good. Um, you know, I hated I had to get the surgery during the summer like this. I had to, had to miss out on a lot of the golf season, but I was going to put it off until like late fall. But I, I just got in so much pain, man. I was waking up in the morning and couldn't hardly walk. Like uh, I had these um, shooting pains going down my left leg. My left side was going numb. Uh, so I had a compressed, um, I had a vertebrae that was compressed on a nerve. So they went in to shave the bone down uh, so to give me some relief there. So I had to kind of move that along and, and cut the golf season a little short. But uh, i hopefully be back out there probably late fall, early winter playing again. If memory serves me correct, the first time you were on this podcast during, I call it COVID-1, 2020, Yep. Kevin talked about a golf feat that was a questioning the validity of a hole in one because he like hit the bumper that they, when they had like the little bumper set up. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that year the Browns made a little playoff run. My golf feat that occurred a couple months ago had my first legit eagle. Oh, nice, man. Congrats. Thank you. It was uh, pretty emotional. It was uh, Shaker Heights Country Club in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, if you want, we could all go to a game and uh, maybe we play Shaker together. That'd be effing awesome. Oh, I'd but yeah, I brought that up partially because yes, I did want to talk about that Eagle with Tim Couch and Kevin. But last time we talked about golf with Tim Couch on the podcast, the Browns had a winning record. So not, jot that down. We're not playing on an East Side. We're going to West Side Westwood Country Club if we do this. But that's just real quicker. Um, well, congratulations on your Eagle. It's no hole in one during COVID, but it's good enough. Um, well, good. I'm glad that you're healing up and hope you get back out there soon. Let's talk some bourbon. Tell us what's going on with the bourbon. I've seen you doing the, the press runs, the social yeah. media. I mean, I'm a big guy when it comes to like, just the look of a bottle bottle looks sweet. Tell us what's going on there. Yeah. So, uh, I had, I had uh, some guys come to me about an investment opportunity in this bourbon company and, um, had a chance to try it and went and saw the facility and everything. And, and really just believed in the product. I think it's awesome. You know, me being from the state of Kentucky and obviously Kentucky bourbon to just kind of go hand in hand, um, you know, um, you know, love bourbon. It's kind of, you know, a huge tradition here in Kentucky. Uh, so I wanted to be part of it. You know, I wanted to get in that space a little bit and I uh, had a chance to get in with this, this premium bourbon called Limestone Farms. And, um, you know, it's great. It's, 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 it's off and running, man. Uh, we're, we're selling it faster than we can bottle it right now. Uh, we're actually in the process of building our own distillery. 
uh, here in Kentucky as well. So we'll be able to get a lot more production up and running once we get that distillery built. Uh, but, it, but it's great. We're in a few different states already. Um, we're in the liquor barns, which is a big, uh, um, you know, alcohol place here in Kentucky. And, um, you know, so we're, we're, we're doing great, working on some other deals as well in the meantime. So it's, uh, I'm excited about it. It's got a great opportunity. And everyone who likes bourbon and I've let try it really is a big fan of it. It's, it's pretty strong stuff. Though. I mean, it's like 114 proof. It's, uh, you got to be ready for it. Put a little hair on hey, are- we are open to. We are very selective with our advertisement, but oh, have hey, I got one, a one word, Binnies. Yeah. Wait, <laughs> what states are what states are you live in? Uh, so we we just shipped out to Colorado. Obviously, we're in Kentucky. Uh, we are in. Um, uh, let's see. There's two more. I can't think of them right now. Well, are any of them Ohio or Illinois? <laughs> uh, no, not yet. But we are. I know we are working on Ohio. They just uh, sent an email out the other day that we're talking about trying to get into Ohio. So just kind of a process they make you go through. You got to jump all these, uh, you know, jump through all these hoops to get in there to sell. But uh, we'll, we'll get there for sure. We definitely want to be in Ohio. That's, that's usually on our list for sure. So a, a man in Kentucky who specializes in whiskey isn't going over state lines because he's listening to the government. Your ancestors are absolutely ashamed of you right now. You thought your dad was mad about the Tennessee commitment? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're definitely ashamed at this point. We're working on it, though. We're, we're going to get there. It's okay. The Couch family is legit. Uh, when you do open, oh, gosh, I can't wait for that to get into Ohio. I can only imagine the hoops you got to go through, but that's yeah, awesome. I'll send you guys a bottle. I'll get your address after this. I'll send you a bottle and try. I think you'll like it. Hell yeah, Kevin. Oh, that's awesome. Thank now, you, Mr. Couch. Now, sp- sponsor for the rest of the year. Yeah. Um, you, you covered our rates. You covered our fee. <laughs> so, um, normally, you know, speaking of alcohol, um, alcohol and being a fan of the Browns uh, is kind of goes hand in hand. Definitely. Of course, responsibly, if you're of age um, and not driving. So... I want to talk about, and this is perfect timing. I'm so glad we could have you on this week because Browns were 1-0, came off a big win against Cincinnati last week in Cleveland. I was there. 1989 was the last time the Browns were favored at the Steelers. Were favored Monday night by two and a half points right now as of Wednesday evening. Not going to work. The last time the Browns were 2-0 to start the season was 1993. I was five years old. Raleigh was it you know somewhere in there too you know these these athletic builds you're staring at were not even we're still years away the last time the Browns won a regular season game at Pittsburgh was October fifth two thousand three and you sir were the quarterback in that game I remember that one let us take a quick moment of silence for how pathetic that statistic is that is the year of our Lord twenty twenty three twenty years ago and hey shout out Baker and the team for the playoff win and that that's but that's postseason regular season 20 years yeah I can't, I can't believe it's been that long i saw that stat the other day and i'm like surely that that can't be right what was roethlisberger's record he lost like what one or two games against the browns his whole career uh i think it, it was, was two after it was two including the playoff loss until baker's like third or fourth year roethlisberger was the winning most quarterback at that yeah, yeah we all know that oh, stat yeah, that's, that's unbelievable <laughs> So I can't believe it's been that long. I, I remember that game. It feels like it was 100 years ago. I mean, it, was, it was forever. So let's go take a quick trip down memory lane. Like I said, October 5th, 2003, almost 20 years of the day. Browns 33, Steelers 13. Let's just quickly recap the uh, the touchdowns in this game. First touchdown, Tim Couch threw to Andre Davis. Shout out Andre Davis. 
Yep. Touchdown number two, Tim Couch through to Kevin Johnson. Side note, I've been wearing a vintage Kevin Johnson jersey, K. Johnson to the bars for Browns games, right, and people man. think it's the Keystone Johnson jersey. Third touchdown, Tim Couch with a nine-yard run. Yeah, remember that? And then uh, last touchdown was Dalen McCutcheon, 75-yard pick six. Yeah, yeah, I remember Couch got a huge pick there. Uh, we, we got after him in the first half pretty good. We jumped out to a pretty big lead. In the second half, we get, we were pretty conservative. We didn't do a whole lot, but uh, the defense was awesome, man. In that game, they they shut it down. I think I think Tommy Maddox was the quarterback for for Pittsburgh that night, uh, if I remember correctly. But uh, yeah, I remember uh, Dalen Dalen had a pick six. It was awesome. They threw an out route and uh, he undercut it and, and took it to the house. So it was a fun win, man. We um, we hadn't had a whole lot of success in that stadium. Uh, so to go in there and it was a Sunday night football game as well. So you know it was a big atmosphere and a, a lot of fun to play in that game. Was Paul Malo there? Uh, yes, I think he may have been a rookie. He was definitely there. Uh, Porter, um, uh, let's see. They had a big defensive line. Oh, they had a Kendrell Bell at linebacker. They had a big D lineman. I'm trying to think of his name. Uh, it was really good. Uh, I guess it would have been James Harrison would have been there, right? Well, uh, Jerome Bettis scored in this game. But it was a different game back there defensively. I'm not like one of the people that's like, oh, they've made the game so soft. I'm like, oh, it was – it's still pretty in, a lot more intense than what I do on <laughs> Sunday. Um, but when you were talking about the when he said the nine yard touchdown, you you're like, yeah, I remember that. I'm like, uh, was that the scariest run of your life? Is that full puck or are you pumped? Run, running the ball in the NFL is a scary ass thing, man. You come out of the pocket. The first thing I was looking for is where I, where can I fall down? <laughs> you know, where, where can I slide? Where's the first down marker? Can I get there? Or is somebody going to knock, knock, knock my head off before I get there? So that one, I remember um, I scrambled out to my right and I kept pump faking the ball and just trying to hold the defense in the, in the end zone. <laughs> And they all kind of just backed up, and I just kept running the whole time. And no one came to get me, so I was like, well, shit, I might as well score. So <laughs> I got in there, spiked the ball, on, hit, a, hit him with a little bit of a flex right there in the end zone, and uh, yeah, that was a pretty cool moment. Yeah. Another uh, thing about this game, and I, I'm bringing up this because it was rare. This is not to knock the guy, friend of program. Phil Dawson missed a kick during this game, and that never happened. That didn't happen very often, that's for sure. No, since we brought up that running touchdown, I was just thinking about the era that you played in. Again, not calling – I will never be like, oh, they're soft now. But those hits, when you look at the highlight reels back then, oh, were yeah. different. Like well, They, they uh, were lighting us up. You know, they, they, they would come after you. Those, those guys were headhunting. You know, we, you know, our division was just brutal. You know, we had, you know, we played Baltimore, you know, they were probably maybe the best defense of all time with Ray Lewis and Ed Reed and, you know, all those guys they had, uh, Tony Saragusa, uh, all of, all those dudes they had on that side of the ball. That was a physical game twice a year. It was Pittsburgh twice a year, which was always super physical. Cincinnati had a good defense too. They had some good players. Um, you know, when I first came to the league, we were in the division with uh, Tennessee as well. The Titans was the old AFC. Yeah. Uh, Central, I guess it was. And, you know, they had great teams back then. That was with, you know, Steve McNair and Eddie George and those guys. Eddie were, George. Yeah, man. It was uh, – so we played those guys twice a year as well. So it was uh, it, it was tough. Those guys were bringing it, man. Looking over the line as you're coming up under center to take the ball, just the fact that you could just call out the play and then snap the ball, I'd be up there saying Hail Mary. Forget uh, the play. I'm looking over and seeing all those boys, the Ravens defense, just licking their chops ready to take my head off. Because back then they were trying to kill, like literally kill the quarterback. No, question. I'd be saying like in our hail. I'd be saying the rosary out loud instead of the play call. 
It's intimidating at times, which actually reminded me of a funny story. We were playing the Ravens one time um, in Cleveland, and Bruce Arians was my offensive coordinator at the time. And, um, you know, we would script our first 15 plays, and we come up to the line of scrimmage, and, you know, those are just call it, run it, let's go type of things. You know, we just kind of, you know, filling them out, you know, kind of giving them a lot of formations and shifts and motions to see how they're going to line up and adjust to us. And literally the first three plays of the game, I'm calling audibles at the line of scrimmage. You know, check, 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 trying to get out of the play. Finally, Bruce calls timeout. I walk over to the sideline. He goes, what the hell are you changing all my plays for? And I'm like, because Ray is out here calling every single play that we're about to run. Like, it was it was like he was in the huddle with us. Like, we would get up to the line. He'd be like, screen, draw. Like, everything we were doing, he was calling it out before the snap. It was, it was unbelievable, man. And Ed Reed was, was super smart like that as well. So, those guys were horrible to play against. So they were as cerebral, like students oh, of the game, yeah. than they were that just as much as they were physical freaks. Yeah, I think that's what made them great. You know, I mean, obviously they were they were great players and super physical, and you know they wanted to take your head off, but they were so smart. You know, Ray 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 does. Uh, you know, he he's he was phenomenal. You know, you you see those chess matches he would get into with Peyton Manning when they would play against each other, and Ray would check and Peyton would check, and they kind of go back and forth on that deal. Uh, he, he was hard to play against just because he was so intelligent. You know, he got a, you know, I think that's probably why he made so many tackles is he got such a, you know, quick jump on the ball because he kind of, you know, knew where it was going. You know, he had watched so much film and studied your offense so well, he, he kind of knew it as well as you did. So uh, he, he was very tough to play against. Do you, uh, is that a art that is, I don't know, forgotten or, or something? I haven't heard of that concept of a linebacker, like, just blatantly directing or like getting into like knowing exactly what the play call is and to yeah. a point where guys are getting rattled. Uh, you know, back then, you know, we played against some awesome linebackers. Brian Erlacher was another guy who was like that. He was, he was super intelligent. He would call out plays before the snap. Um, you know, it was, you know, there was some, I don't know if, I don't know if they still do that, you know, nowadays, but uh, you know, back then those guys were, they were on it, man. They were sharp. They were, they, they, they knew, they knew what was going on, especially, you know, the guys in our division, you know, we were playing twice a year, every year. They knew our calls, you know, we would have to change calls up going into those games just because they, they were familiar with, uh, you know, what we were doing. So uh, it made it tough to play against those divisional opponents for sure. Back to the Browns. We are 29 minutes into this episode. And now we are talking about the Cleveland Browns. Uh, what a win. What a bizarre win. What an amazing win dominated by the defense. We probably watched it and think, good God, if I had the line that these guys have right now. Well, I, you could have thought that. And, the, and the running back. My God, Nick Chubb's so good, man. I, I, I watched that guy play. I'm just mesmerized. I, like he's, he's one of the best backs I've seen, you know, honestly, I think he's the best back in the league right now. Uh, he, I, I would have loved to have the opportunity to play with him, but uh, he, he makes the game easier for a quarterback. But, you know, that defense was just they, – they were something to watch, man. You know, I was thinking, you know, Burrow, he, saw, he struggled a little bit against the Browns in his career. Uh, but this time they came in and the weather, you know, I was surprised um, how Burrow struggled early in that game. Like, he couldn't get a grip on the ball. And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if I've ever seen him play in a rainy game like that, but he couldn't throw it more than 10 yards there early on in the game. So the Browns were jumping all the routes. Uh, their defensive backs played awesome in that game. They, they were they were really locking down those great receivers they have there in Cincinnati. And then Miles Garrett and then my guy from Kentucky, Zadarius Smith. He looked great. Yeah, oh, Kentucky. yeah Kentucky dude, man. He uh, yeah, I think he makes a difference. He frees Miles up a little bit. And I, I thought Schwartz was was really creative in how he used those guys. You know, Miles. You know, we saw him lining up over the center sometimes. 
playing on both sides of the ball, uh, just uh, finding creative ways to get pressure on Burrow. And it was uh, it was an impressive performance. I can't wait to see what they do on Monday night against Pittsburgh to, to see how this team's going to look. You know, it's, uh, you know, one game is always, you know, you kind of get excited about it, but let's see how they do, you know, another divisional opponent, uh, opponent on the road. So it'll be fun to see how those guys look in week two. Steve Young, I think it was some quarterback, said he would prefer to throw or to play in the mud, the snow, a blizzard, minus 20 degrees, anything but rain in a wet football. Can you dumb down for us civilians, most notably Raleigh and I? Because people were making such a big deal out of, well, obviously we love that Burrow couldn't do anything with the ball. But some people were getting on Deshaun for a couple of throws. Can you dumb down what it's like to throw during a typhoon? Yeah. Particularly in First Energy Stadium or whatever the hell it is. Cleveland Brown yeah. Stadium. You know, the, the stadium is, is awful for quarterbacks and kickers. You know, it's, uh, you know, right there on the lake. Um, you know, you get the wind, you get the rain, you get the snow, um, all that all that stuff coming in there. So it's a really tough stadium to throw and kick in. Um, you know, I, I, I wish, and I remember being there when I first got there in 99, I was like, I wish they would put a dome on this place, you know, a retractable <laughs> roof or something, man. Let's make it easier for us. But, um, but yeah, when you're throwing in the rain, um, you're pretty limited on, on what you can do. You know, I think, you know, we saw Deshaun throw a couple or an interception, I remember, across the middle that he tried to zip it in on the move a little bit in between a couple defenders, and the ball came up short and they picked it off. It's just you can't make those throws in the rain. Like, you know, dry condition, perfect weather, Deshaun makes that throw every time. But with this one, you know, I think I even heard him say after the game, he gripped the ball a little too tight yeah. and the ball just kind of died out on him. And that's that's what it makes you do. You know, anytime you're throwing the ball deep, uh, trying to fit it into a tight window and you really got to, you know, you know, bear back and throw it. You know, you, you kind of grip the ball a little bit harder when it, when it rains like that. You know, the ball squirts out of your hand. You kind of lose uh, lose that good grip on it. So it, it makes things really tough. I hated playing in the rain. It was, you know, I, I, I do remember Steve Young saying something like that, how hard it was to throw the ball uh, when it's pouring rain like that. You know, it's just getting the ball from center, you know, because the center's pants are soaking wet. So you got your hands in there. So his, his sweat and, and the rain, nasty, is all over the top of your hand. You get the ball, and it's covered, you know, in water. So you're just – you're back there, and you're, just, you're trying to flip the ball around, trying to get uh, get a good grip on it. So it makes it tough, for sure. First Energy Stadium is not easy to play in. Like, what the hell do we have to do to turn it into a home field advantage? Because I'm out of ideas. It is tough. You know, I, I remember um, Phil Dawson and I and Gardaki and those guys, we would be, you know, we would go out for warm-ups, and, you know, they're out there testing, you know, each end. You know, you're trying to see how far you can kick it going into each end. Uh, you know how, how how much you're playing the wind, and I'm I'm going out there and I'm testing you know deep balls going uh, going each direction where the wind's coming in off off of Lake Erie right there, and there's just some throws you can't make. You know I would go and tell Bruce Arians, you know we're going in this direction, you just you can't call that play. I, there's no way we could throw the ball you know 40 45 yards into into this wind or you know with the rain or whatever it is. So it definitely uh, it it makes you adjust your game plan, it makes you adjust your thought process and. And, uh, you know, as the game goes on, uh, you know, what throws you can make and those kind of things. So it kind of limits you, you know, offensively, uh, definitely as a quarterback and, uh, and a play caller. Well, in speaking of home field advantage was Phil Dawson. Yeah. Because he's the only kicker that, I mean, we've had, I think we've, for well, the last 10, 12 years, we've gone through 10, 12 kickers, like every single year. So home field advantage was, yeah, obviously he's a quarterback being there for years and, and knowing how that goes. But Phil Dawson, when he was on the podcast, he was talking about uh, he was like surgical, like he had three different flags set up. 
He had like the grounds crew would have something set up. Like he knew exactly what the wind was doing. He did, man. He had he had a big advantage over the kickers coming in. Phil knew that stadium, you know, inside and out. He knew exactly how the wind was going to play it. He knew exactly where he could make it from. And you know, his uh, like like you said, his attention to detail with that kind of stuff and what he would do pregame with you know the flags and just understanding you know the wind and the elements uh, is what made him such a great player, especially in that stadium. Ryan, you have a very uh, dumb question I wanted to ask, a quarterback question. With Peyton, he would always yell, Omaha, Omaha. Am I right or wrong? In the huddle, are, is two plays called? And if you're not calling an audible, you're saying 318 or whatever it is. Or, or why do these guys have these weird things they yell every single time? Yeah, so, so a lot of it, um, you know, it's just depending on the system that you're in. You know, the system I played in with Bruce Arians, we would actually call three plays in the huddle most of the time. So it'd be we had a run, we had a run right, a run left, and a pass check. You know, most you know first and second down especially, we would have you know options to get in and out of pass plays into run plays or run plays into pass plays, vice versa. So a lot of that stuff is you're getting up there and you're changing the play. Like maybe you got a run right called, the safety comes down to that side, you're going to run it away from the safety because you can't you can't account for him in the blocking scheme. So you're going to run it the opposite direction. Or you see a look that you want to throw the ball into, and you're changing, you're killing the play. You know, you're you're alerting uh, them to the uh, uh, to, to the total. You know, you're banning the running plays. You're going to the pass plays. Um, you know, so it just depends on the system. Um, you know, it's uh, it, it, you know the words. You know, sometimes they come up with dummy signals as well. You know, Peyton would use those a lot too, where you know everyone thought he was audible all the time. And a lot of times he was just up there, just you know, making the defense think he was audible. You know, and make sure they were going to stay in what they were in. Um, you know, so, so there's a lot of a lot of games that go on, you know, pre-snap kind of doing that stuff with your words, uh, the cadence, you know, just trying to get guys to show uh, where they're blitzing, get the covers to uh, show where they're going to roll to, things like anything you can get um, uh, to, show, to make them show themselves a little sooner than they want to is a huge advantage for a quarterback. I've always wondered that. Now, people always, people that don't know football, like us, yes. try to say many different things about that. So that's fascinating. What got you most jacked up about? that game on Sunday. What's looking promising to you? What are the things that you notice that you think the me and Kevin wouldn't notice, which is a lot. And, and not just you being a former Browns player and, and like just from someone who knows football, when you saw that game, what were some positives high level about the Browns? I thought I asked that question clearly. <laughs> you, know, you know, I think, I think the biggest thing that jumped out to me was the attitude of the players, you know, especially on the defensive side of the ball. Um, you know, last year, you know, they, they, were, they were a talented roster, but, you know, guys were missing tackles. They were taking uh, bad pursuit angles. The defense just looked awful last year. You know, with the change of defensive coordinator, I saw guys communicating better. I saw guys making tackles. I saw guys making plays. I saw pressure on the quarterback. I saw defensive backs right in receivers' faces. I saw, you know, all that. You know, I think offensively, I think we're going to be a good football team. We have been for the last few years with Nick Chubb. Uh, you're going to be able to run the ball with that offensive line. I think Deshaun Watson is going to be a much better player. You know, that I think he's going to feel comfortable in the system. Uh, you know, he's got his feet back under him from the suspension. Uh, so I, I saw a lot of positives, man. I really did. You know, I think, um, you know, like, like I said earlier, I, I'm really excited to see them on Monday night against Pittsburgh and, and get a better feel for what this team is really going to look like. But, you know, so far in week one, I'm excited. I can't wait to see them again. So I, I did see something on Twitter talking, showing the guys communicating. And I was like, I it's one of those clips where you're like, oh, my God, they're communicating better. It's like, I watched <laughs> the game like, yeah. like I had no absolute, I had absolutely no clue. But hearing you say it validates it. I do remember during the game, 
seeing, I think it was Taki Taki made a tackle from behind, like came out of nowhere. I'm like, I don't think they did that once last year where it was just like an aggressive attack uh, from the angle where it's like they are, they were just all in locked in every play. And it's like, if you make a mistake, make it at a hundred miles an hour. They didn't do that one game last year. Well, there are a couple here and there. Uh, Also, before I kind of ask a question, potentially bashing him, I saw Stefanski getting a ref's face this year. I like I had not seen that last year. I don't recall yeah. Yeah. where there was like some bad call or no call, whatever it was, and it was during offense. He got in the guy's face. I'm like, okay, that gets me kind of jacked up. Hopefully, mm-hmm. it gets the players jacked up. Jim Schwartz was kind of demonized. This is maybe the hardest. Qu- yeah, this is definitely the most not softball question we've ever asked him. Couch on our podcast. Um, Jim Schwartz, not excuse me. Joe Woods was demonized, not demonized, rightfully blamed for the shortcomings of the defense, in my opinion. Yeah. I'm like, after seeing that team perform, which yeah, they made some upgrades during the offseason. Is that not an indictment on Stefanski? I'm not calling for the guy's job, but it's like, who the hell was paying attention to Joe Woods for three years? to see that kind of mediocrity. And then Schwartz comes around and just turns him around just by getting him jacked up. Like, yeah. You know, I, I think um, it, 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 the coaching change makes such a big difference. You know, it's a, you know, you think at that level, they're all professionals they They should be doing the right thing. Doesn't matter who's in there, but you know, sometimes getting a guy like Schwartz in there, who's, who's no nonsense. He's going to hold guys uh, accountable and make them play uh, and communicate and, and study and do all the things that, um, you know, you're, you're looking for those guys to do. I think it makes a huge difference. And we saw it already, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, throughout the off season, you know, the preseason, the first week of the season that these guys are, they're playing at a different level. You know, I think these guys believe in what, what he's teaching. They believe in the system. Like you said, guys are playing faster now, you know, guys are running around, they're making tackles. They're, they're flying all over the field. They're not afraid to make a mistake. And, you know, that's the way you have to play on defense. You got to be aggressive. You got to come downhill. You got to make plays. And, uh, you know, so far that's what we've seen out of these guys. I always wonder, you got some of these unbelievable quarterbacks. Like, let's look at, like, Mahomes, you know, even uh, Aaron Rodgers, Brady. They have quarterback coaches. Mm-hmm. These guys are 100 times better than their quarterback coaches ever were. Some of these guys have even played in the pros. Do guys really listen to these coaches? Do they trust what they're saying? Like, how does that dynamic work? I've always wondered that, like, not so much the head coach. Sometimes the head coach. Look, look like Jim Schwartz. Miles Garrett's an all-world player. You know, you got Denzel Ward, Pro Bowl cornerback, one of the best cornerbacks in the league. How do you get the respect of these guys that are getting paid $40 million a year, $20 million a year, that that just know that they're better than anything you've been as a coach or a player? How does that dynamic work? Yeah, I think that's a good question, you know, especially at the NFL level. Uh, in college, it's, it's easier to reach guys, I think. Um, you know, they, you know, they're hungry. They're trying to get to the next level. Uh, you know, the NFL is probably a little more difficult to get guys to buy in. Um, you know, but I think it's just a, a belief in a certain coach. You know, I think it's, it goes off his track record, you know, what he's done in the past, who he's worked with in the past. Um, you know, and, and it makes you believe, you know, and then there's just some coaches that just have that, uh, you know, they have that savvy to them where they, they can walk into a room and make you trust them, you know, as far as, you know, what they're teaching and, and, uh, and get you to be fully, uh, you know, bought in and, and those kind of things. So, and that's what it's all about. You know, each coach is different. Uh, each coach has a different personality and, you know, some guys mesh with, with certain guys and some guys don't. So, you know, I've seen it both ways. You know, I've had coaches where we just didn't really, uh, you know, buy into it. 
And I've had other coaches where, you know, like when Bruce Arians got there, uh, you know, my, uh, my third year in the league, Bruce Arians came in from Indianapolis. And for me, you know, I knew Bruce had been working with Peyton Manning in Indianapolis before that. And, you know, as soon as, so when he walked in the door, I was all ears, you know, I'm like, show me what you guys are doing in Indianapolis. You know, I, I want to get this offense to that level where, you know, where Peyton and uh, Marvin Harrison and Edger and James and those guys were taking it to that's, you know, that's, that's where I want to take it to as well. So, um, you know, it just depends on, you know, where they've been, like I said, and, uh, and just kind of the way they, uh, you know, they, they handle the room. So kind of like with Jim Schwartz coming in, he's won a Super Bowl, been to a Super Bowl. So that speaks to the guys in the locker room. Like they're like, okay, yeah. this guy's, this guy's yeah. figured out the answers to the test a couple times. That's why we can listen to what he's saying. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. And, uh, you know, I think he, he probably walked in and told the guys exactly what they wanted to hear as far as, you know, we're going to be aggressive. We're going to blitz. We're going to get after the quarterback. We're going to create turnovers. I'm going to put you guys in the best positions to make plays. Miles, I'm going to move you all around the field. I'm going to let you be the great athlete that you are. You know, just the things that he come in and, and probably said to those guys, you know, I wasn't in the room, but just by watching the game, you know, I think those guys, you know, they fully believe in what he's doing. And, you know, he tells them to line up here, line up there. It's for a reason. And he's, he's trying to he's trying to put them in a place, in a position to go out and be able to make plays and be the best versions of themselves. And, and guys respect that. That's all you can ask for as a player is, is for a coach to put you in the best position possible to, to make the plays you're capable of making. And, um, you know, I think Schwartz is definitely doing that with those guys. Uh, one of the things that he said, I mean, press conferences, talk is cheap to a point, but one of the things he said where I'm like, Awesome thing to say. I want these gentlemen to lead the league in passion for the game and a bunch of things that kind of and badassery and bad. Well, yeah, when you hear you heard that from Greg Newsom, where he goes, he tells us all the time that we're going to lead the league in badassery, and you know that they were just all about it. So it's like, yeah, he told the media one thing, and they told the players the same thing in like a more badassery way. Nice. Um, when I imagine Jim Schwartz, I imagine him as a total authoritarian. Author, what's the word? You're right. Say it. Say it, Kevin. Authoritarian. Yeah, I know. I know how to say it. I just wanted to make sure you could say it. Are those play? Are those coaches the coach? The players' coaches? Are they kind of a my way or the highway mentality, which I could see, like you know, that drill sergeant type mentality, or are they? Is there? communication coming up from the players and the coaches making adaptations accordingly? You know, I think, I think the best coaches I've played for were, um, you know, they were open to, you know, listening to the players. You know, I think there, there's a little bit of that, uh, that attitude of, of my way, the highway, we're going to do it this way. I want you to be disciplined. If, you know, we're going to buy all into this system, but you know, feedback from the players is always good. You know, I think, you know, the guys, you know, players are the ones that are actually out there between the lines uh, you know, they, they know what they feel comfortable doing, what they don't feel comfortable doing. So you go to your leaders, you know, I think, you know, every, you know, for the offensive coordinators that I had, we would go over, you know, I, I think it was like usually like on Fridays or something. And we would go down the playlist and Bruce would be like, you know, certain situations, red zone, uh, short yardage, third down packages, all that kind of stuff. And he's like, are there any plays on this list that you don't like? You know, and Bruce was as big as hard ass as there is, you know, in the league. You know, he's yeah. good after guys, but he also would l allow my input as well. So, you know, if I said, you know, I just don't feel comfortable with that play, you know, for whatever reason, certain plays hit certain guys different, he would just take it out of the damn game plan. And, you know, it wouldn't, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't going to force it down my throat and say, this is my play. I want you to run it. 
you know, if I didn't feel comfortable, he would not call it. So, um, you know, those are, are the kind of coaches I think are probably the most effective. And that's probably what uh, what type of coach Jim Schwartz is from from what I can understand. I swear this is the last question. We've kept you for way too long. If you talk about 1990s college football, there'd be an entire chapter written about your career. I'm not blowing smoke up anyone's ass. That's fact. My question is because there's been a lot of debate lately of, oh, it's old school versus new school. The old school guys are and What have your thoughts been on Deion Sanders of Colorado and what he's doing to the sport of college football? And why I brought up the 90s because that's that's old school college football now. Sorry, hey, we're old too. It's all right. Um, but the whole debate of the the idiots on Twitter and some people is all the old he's you know old school versus new school this and that. I love it. I think most people love it. But you being you know a, a big part of the sport of college football's history, what are your thoughts on what he's been doing this last uh, you know eight months? You know, I, I love it, and I'm actually shocked. You know, I think the way that Dion came in uh, to that program and pretty much said, most of you guys are out, you know, you can't play for me. You know, I thought, okay, I understand what he's doing. They they won whatever, one game the year before, or how many games they won before he got there. And Dion said, you guys can't play for me. You know, I'm not, I'm not uh, you're not any guys that I would recruit. I don't want you, you're not going to fit into my system. I understand that. Uh, but I thought it would take at least, you know, maybe two to three years before he gets his type of guys in there before they start winning games. But right out of the blocks, man, you get the, you know, a team that went to the national championship in TCU the year before you beat them. And then you come back and beat Nebraska as well uh, in week two. And his son is playing lights out football at the quarterback position. Shadour looks awesome, makes unbelievable decisions, gets rid of the ball. He's accurate, smart. Uh, playmaker. Uh, so I love it. I love watching them play. I've tuned into both games so far this year, going to tune in again uh, when they play, I think, Colorado State uh, this this weekend. So I love what he's doing. I love the energy he brings to college football. Uh, he's already got game day, I guess, is going to be there uh, on Saturday, if I'm not mistaken. So he's creating a huge buzz, man. And, uh, you know, I don't know what they're paying Dion, but he's already earned that money, you know, as far as, you know, he's already sold sold that stadium out. He's got, uh, you know, the energy around that program again. It's, uh, that program has a lot of history, a lot of tradition. They've been down for a lot of years now, but, you know, he, he's going to bring that back, and it's, uh, it's happening pretty quickly. So I, I love to see it. That man's skills with the microphone oh, rivaled his skills on the field yeah. since day one. Yeah. He, yeah. he was like – insane moves that like he pulled off. They, he got called by, I think it was like the giants and they were like, Hey, how would you like to play for the giants? He goes, well, when's your pick in the draft? And they were like 12. And he was like, I'm not going to make it that long. And he hung up. Yeah, I'm going to run through wall during his press conferences. It is, but yeah, Tim TC two TC deuce. Sorry. Um, truly appreciate you coming on. It's always a, a, an honor, a pleasure. Um, ladies and gentlemen listening, you can find him on social media on Instagram at TCDeuce2. For those of you in the states that are currently selling it, go check out the Limestone Farms bourbon, which Raleigh and I are looking very much forward to uh, to sampling soon. We're really looking forward to what you already promised at the beginning of this episode of you. I'm definitely going to send you guys a bottle. We're looking forward to, uh, I believe, the uh, the announcement comes in December for the Couchable Hall of Fame. And then uh, hopefully we can con and trick you into coming back on the podcast and to talk about that. But ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Tim Couch, sir, thank you very much again for joining us. I appreciate you guys. I enjoyed it.
fighter, just slinging the ball around. Oh yeah, it's Tim Couch. That man is jacked, and that's a fact. Hell of a quarterback. Oh yeah, it's Tim Couch. This enough, everybody knows. This is how the story goes.